0: On today's episode, Anna shares the story of the Toolbox Killers, two men who committed crimes so heinous that the innocence and trust that came with hitchhiking in the 1970s was violently taken away from women of all ages. Welcome to Crime Bar.
1: Ash, do you realize that this is the first recording we've done in person since quarantine started? Yes, I'm very aware. <laughs> I've been counting down the days for this moment, like we, 11 months.
0: We may as well be far away, though, because we're, I mean.
1: This couch is 12 feet long. Let me say
0: that again. We may as well be virtual because we're so far away from each other. Ew, we're, there's a hair in the coffee you gave me. My bad.
1: It's either mine, yours, or the dog, So the odds are good. Yeah. So Ash and I agreed that this story that I'm covering today is so heavy and so horrific that it probably should just be an episode on its own. Hell yeah. Maybe just easier to process that way.
0: Even if it wasn't heavy, I, I love a
1: week where I don't have to do anything. I know, you're such a hustler. <laughs> give, give my lazy butt something to do. <laughs> So we obviously read and study every type of crime, but there is just something about this one that has literally kept me up at night since I started reading about it. It really plays into the whole greatest fear ever thing. Um, I do kind of feel the need to also warn our listeners that this story involves a great deal of torture and inevitably murder. So I guess consider this a trigger warning.
0: Well, I mean, I think the whole podcast is sort of a trigger warning. It's-
1: yeah, but like, I feel like I've been desensitized to a lot of murder stuff, but mm. this one really set me, it set me off. Like I woke up at one thirty in the morning last night thinking about it. So in my head, I'm like, you know what? Trigger warning for the people. Okay. That's so thoughtful of you. Thanks. So these crimes occurred during a time of relative innocence and trust girls felt comfortable traveling alone and accepting rides from strangers day or night that feeling was taken away when five girls made the fatal decision to trust a duo so terrifying that you cannot help but question the depravity of human beings this is the story of the toolbox killers Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris Eww. yeah chills Lawrence Bittaker was born on September 27th, 1940 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His mother placed him in an orphanage when he was a baby. And from there, he was eventually adopted by the Bittaker family. The Bittaker family moved around a lot. And this was because of his adopted father's work in aircraft factories. He felt like he never really had a real home or roots anywhere. And that feeling stuck with him for the rest of his life.
0: Oh, that's so sad. I, I can't empathize with that because I, like, grew up in the same house in the same yes. little town. And I had the same routine, same, like, everything. I, and I, it's such a, like, it makes me so comfortable that I feel so bad for people who didn't grow up like that. Just as
1: the safety of having a home to identify yeah, with. like The security. Absolutely. And, like, I, when I read that, I was, like, I, I did, like, a, a second of a, aw, and then I remembered who I was talking about, and <laughs> that feeling went away real quick. Yeah. So apparently he had an IQ of 138 which is considered very gifted and fun fact only 1% of people in the world have an IQ of 135 or higher. So he's you, a smart dude.
0: Do you know your IQ? I do and
1: I don't want to say it because it's surprisingly high. And I don't want to sound like I'm bragging. I don't I I don't even know mine. I took the IQ test with an ex-boyfriend because he told me that he was smarter than I was. Uh, yeah, no. So we're not together anymore. <laughs> but um, I beat his by like 20 points, so. Say it. I'm not going to, but it's in the 140s. Oh. I know, shocking. Wow. You know
0: me, that's an absolute shock, but. No, that's not shocking. I'm just.
1: I was pretending to be humble. <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> <laughs> Stop, Ashley. What? <laughs> so. He dropped out of high school when he was about 17 years old and this was after years of run-ins with the law. Lawrence was only 12 years old when his criminal record began to fill with petty theft and this quickly escalated to his arrest for a hit and run and auto theft in Long Beach, California. So I don't know what you were doing at 12 but I was still playing with Barbies. He got a hit and run at 12? Yeah auto theft and a hit and run. Oh my god. Yeah I was driving my Barbie car at that point. Actually, at
0: twelve, I was definitely learning how to drive my dad's boat on the lake. So that's so sick.
1: <laughs> While he was serving his time in a juvenile detention center, psychiatrists diagnosed him as a borderline psychotic with borderline personality disorder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he was described as incredibly manipulative, hostile, and disconnected from reality. Per- in juvie, yes, like he's a. He's, a youth. He's a youth, and he's already so pleasant. <sighs> Lawrence served time in the California Youth Authority until he was 19 years old, and when he was released from the detention center, he found out that his adopted family had disowned him and relocated. Mm. From then on, he was in and out of jail numerous times, and every psychiatric evaluation determined Bittaker to be paranoid and borderline psychotic. Despite these findings and proof that he had little control over his impulses, he was always released back onto the street. And on to the next piece of crap. Roy Norris was born on February 5th, 1948 in Greeley, Colorado. Similar to Lawrence Bittaker, Roy spent the majority of his life in and out of foster care. When Roy was 16, he spent a brief period of time with his biological family. When his father found out that he had made a sexual pass at a female relative, he threatened to beat him. Fair? <laughs> Fair? And in response, Roy stole his father's car and attempted to commit suicide by injecting pure air into an artery in his arm. Wait, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, like Okay, wait. So his like revenge on his dad's threat? Was to commit suicide, but in the most bizarre... I've never heard of that being a method, and I'm very curious as to why. I googled why he chose that route and obviously got nothing. Otherwise, I would have been talking about that, but I'm just curious about that route.
0: That is disturbing on another level. Yeah,
1: it points to a few issues, in Mm. my opinion. Well, yeah, yeah, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, They're starting now. His biological parents abandoned him, and he joined the U.S. Navy. He spent most of his service stationed in San Diego. And while he was there, he tried to attack a woman in her home. And luckily the police arrived before he could harm her. Uh, Because of this, he was discharged and military psychologists diagnosed him with severe schizoid personality. It was almost impossible for Roy to express his emotions. And even when directly provoked, he just came off cold and distant. Roy explained that he lived with a family that would use his foster care checks to buy themselves food and then they would just not feed him. Oh. Yeah, so they wouldn't buy him clothes and would often just give him the girls' hand-me-downs. Oh. (laughs) I know. It's going to create a lot of issues later on in life. So unfortunately, this is not something that is uncommon in the foster care system. Unfit parents fostering children for the money. And I looked into the statistics related to neglect and abuse in the foster care system, but it's so difficult to get an idea because many of the victims just don't report their abusers. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's just so... It, I'm sure it's off the charts. Absolutely. And like with that being said, I'm, there are, you know, many incredible foster parents, but there are many assholes out there too. Yeah, it's too easy to become a foster parent. If you're going to get a check, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. it's going to obviously attract some... um some bad folks. Mm-hmm. This is a direct quote from Roy. And no one believes a kid when you tell about rape. It happens to men too. I think I got tripped up on sex, three ways, violence, because I had all that. And no one, no agency jumped to jail those bastards. You grow up and it's normal. Sex like anything else wouldn't feel right or get me off. Norris stated that he liked to overwhelm women with fear can and terror. Can
0: I interject? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, that's that's so. I know that he, I know of this story enough to know that like we shouldn't feel sympathy for him because he did horrific things later on. But like that is so devastating.
1: We're talking about Child Roy, so it's okay to have empathy for him, and because you, I mean, you see this happening where you know obviously he was subjected to being mentally ill. I mean, he obviously had issues, and then. These terrible things happen to him and you never know at what point maybe it set him over the edge in a very dangerous manner. Yeah. It's really sad.
0: Either way, just hearing, it doesn't matter who it is or what they've done in their adult life, hearing of a child being hurt at all is just
1: horrible. Yeah, absolutely. Norris stated that he liked to overwhelm women with fear and terror, just as they had always done to him. Lawrence and Roy met while doing time at the California Men's Colony, a correctional institution located in San Luis Obispo. Lawrence was convicted of attempted murder after stabbing a supermarket employee with a steak knife. Oh. Roy was convicted of attempted rape after he attacked a 27-year-old woman. According to Roy, Lawrence had saved his life on two different occasions in prison So therefore, they were bound by a unique friendship that is referred to as prisoner's code. Oh, much like ours. Yes, like you have my back, so I have yours. Mm -hmm. They both had abandonment issues, a hatred for the people that raised them, and criminal records that began very early on in their lives. By 1978, the two became very close and divulged their darkest fantasies and desires. Oh, again, like us. Again, like us. Ours are different. (laughs) we just want foot massages and coffee (laughs) lawrence explained to roy that his sexual offenses were due to being aroused by frightened young women and if he were to ever rape a woman he would make sure to kill her afterwards so that there wouldn't be any witnesses left behind is he a virgo yes and i know i literally he cleans up all the loose ends Mm -hmm. yeah all right ashley Ashley Virgo. just so you know everybody. I see myself in him. (laughs) (laughs) That's so nice to hear. (laughs) The two men were a lethal combination, and they spent their time locked up planning out the murders that they would commit when released. In 1978, Lawrence was released from the California Men's Colony and returned to L.A. I was shocked to read that he actually had a great reputation for being very friendly and generous with the people in his neighborhood. He donated money to the Salvation Army and would hand out large quantities of food to the homeless in downtown LA. Only three months later, Roy was released and moved in with his mother in Redondo Beach. A few sources stated that an incestuous relationship between them may have started, and so I obviously tried looking into this more, but I couldn't find any specifics. So I'm not Mm -hmm. sure if this is a rumor or not, but might as well mention it. In February, the two men met up at a hotel and began to discuss their plan to kidnap and murder young girls.
0: Do you remember that one time we had like an amazing brunch? We got cake and (laughs) wine at that hotel in Santa Monica, and we just like talked. It's like that. It's like that, but... In a seedy motel. Mm -hmm. Oh, I picture... (laughs)
1: no Pinot Grigio. <laughs> I
0: literally pictured them. I didn't. I pictured them at a restaurant or like at a bar at a nice
1: hotel. <laughs> Sharing a, a a nice light beer yeah. or an IPA. Yeah. I need another coffee. Yeah. you the know, rest of mine. Their goal was to assault one girl of each teenage year from 13 to 19 years old. They purchased a silver 1977 GMC cargo van, which essentially became their kidnapping van. Mm. The van was windowless and had a large passenger side sliding door. They even installed a bed in the rear of the van.
0: Ew, this is like so on brand with
1: their goals. With <laughs> being creepy. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. They nicknamed that van Murder Mac. Oh. Because God forbid they would go by without nicknaming their car. Yeah. From February to June, 1979, the two men picked up more than 20 female hitchhikers to practice luring victims into their van. They spent this time scouting locations for their crimes as well, and eventually found a secluded road in the San Gabriel Mountains. So basically these guys had dress rehearsals for a few months so that they could excel at their mission to kill later on. Once again, probably Lawrence that insisted on that. The Virgo. The Virgo. It's just like
0: us with our podcast. We had months of dress rehearsals. Thats <laughs> my <Seriously>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Just like seven months of it. No big deal. <laughs> on June 24th, 1979, these disgusting individuals teamed up on their first murder. Her name was Lucinda Lynn Schaefer, and she was only 16 years old. Oh. She was a beautiful blonde with blue eyes and was last seen wearing a white blouse with Mexican style embroidery dark jeans, and sandals. Lucinda was leaving a Presbyterian church meeting in Redondo Beach and was on her way to her grandma's house when the two men spotted her and offered her a ride. She had no interest in the marijuana that the men offered her and refused the ride no matter how much they insisted. So they parked their van down the street and waited for her to walk by. So once she was walking past... Roy dragged her inside the van, bound her legs and arms, while Lawrence turned the volume up on the radio to muffle her screams and protests. This is a direct quote from Lawrence about Lucinda. She displayed a magnificent state of self-control and composed acceptance of the conditions in which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming. Oh my God. I know. One of my sources stated that she asked the two men if they were going to kill her, and they said no. Um, but it was clear that she did not believe them. So she asked them if she could pray if they were going to kill her. They did not grant her request, they couldn't even give her that. that yeah. The men drove the van to the predetermined road in the San Gabriel Mountains where they both sexually assaulted the girl before strangling her with a wire coat hanger. Roy became ill when he saw the look in her eyes, so Lawrence finished the horrendous act. They wrapped her body in a plastic shower curtain and threw her over a steep canyon. Her remains were never found. Oh my god. So this is just them walking the authorities through this later oh you know like they're uh, the ones that's how we know this you mean exactly only two weeks later they came across a woman hitchhiking along the pacific coast highway her name was andrea joy hall and she was 18 years old like the first victim andrea was also blonde with blue eyes she was last seen in a one-piece bathing suit and blue terry cloth shorts I know that most of you, including myself, couldn't fathom trusting a stranger and getting in their car, but back then hitchhiking was incredibly common. And you always hear about people never locking their doors at night and hitchhiking all over town. But unfortunately the world is just a very different place that's not really doable now. Different times. (laughs) Absolutely. And like I talked to my mom about this and she said that the crimes that these two men's committed (laughs) these two men committed was um, one of the biggest reasons that many women stopped using hitchhiking as an option for transportation yeah understandably so Andrea supposedly had left Ohio for a fresh start in California Um, she came from a very poor family and was going through a financially tough time herself so she would donate blood at blood banks uh, just to get by She was a regular hitchhiker and very appreciative whenever she could get a free ride to wherever she was going. The duo found that if only one of them appeared to be in the van, then they would seem less threatening and girls would be more likely to accept their offers. Lawrence lured Andrea into the back of the van with a soda from the cooler and when she was reaching for the drink, Roy came out from underneath the bed and jumped on her. Ew. I know. He just... He tied her wrists and he tied her ankles. And like the first victim, um, she was sexually assaulted by both of them. Lawrence decided that they should park the van further into the mountains after he claimed that he had seen um, headlights from another car approaching. So Lawrence forced Andrea to walk completely nude alongside the road and pose for Polaroid pictures while doing so. And he sent Roy to go to the store to purchase some alcohol and um, when roy had returned lawrence was holding these polaroid pictures and uh, of andrea and showed roy and he stated that her expression could only be described as sheer terror while roy was gone lawrence had asked andrea if she could give him any good reason to spare her life he declared that her reasons were just not good enough and killed her with an ice pick He then threw her body off of the side of the cliff very close to where they disposed of Lucinda Schaefer and her remains were never found. After laying low for a couple of months, the two resumed their killings. On September 3rd, the men came across two girls named Jackie Gilliam and Jacqueline Lamp while they were sitting on a bus stop bench near Hermosa Beach. The two girls had been hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway trying to get a ride to the beach, before resting at the bus stop. The girls accepted the duo's offer for a ride in marijuana. And when they noticed that the van was steering off of the PCH and towards the mountains, they began to protest and attempt to open up the van's sliding door. So Roy knocked Jacqueline unconscious and began to bind Jackie. The girls were held captive for two days- Wait, do they have the same name? Jackie and Jacqueline, so it's confusing. The girls were held captive for two days in the San Gabriel Mountains, both assaulted repeatedly. The two men slept next to their hostages and took numerous nude Polaroids of the girls. They slept next to them? I know. Can you imagine the terror? To prolong the memory of the abduction, they decide to make tape records of the assaults. Lawrence created a tape of himself raping Jackie forcing her to pretend to be a cousin that he was always attracted to.
0: Is that the guy who who like came on to his relative earlier
1: in the story? So that was actually Roy, which is interesting that they both had an interest. Not interesting, awful. Awful. They both had an attraction to their family members. Okay. He told Jackie, feel free to express your pain. The girls were murdered after two days of captivity. Lawrence killed Jackie by striking her with an ice pick and then strangling her. He killed Jacqueline by hitting her on the head with a sledgehammer before strangling her. They threw both of the bodies over an embankment. Their final victim was a 16 year old named Shirley Ledford. On October 31, 1979, they abducted her as she stood outside of a gas station after she had been hitchhiking home from a Halloween party. Shirley Ledford actually worked part-time as a waitress at a restaurant that Lawrence frequented and apparently accepted their offer because she recognized the familiar face. Oh, no. She thought that she was in good hands because she saw this man regularly. Yeah. The men drove the van to a secluded street and then bound and gagged Shirley with heavy-duty tape. Lawrence tormented and teased her, repeatedly telling her to scream, She pleaded that she would scream if he would just stop hitting her. Roy grabbed the sledgehammer and struck her 25 times in the same spot on her elbow. Oh my God, just to get her to scream. Absolutely, yeah, exactly. After two hours of captivity and horrific torture, Roy strangled her with a wire coat hanger that he had tightened with pliers. Oh my God. I know, it just keeps getting worse. Lawrence decided to dispose of her body on the lawn of a random house in Sunland so that he could see the reaction from the press. The next morning, Shirley Ledford was found by a jogger. It's like the Black Dahlia. Yeah, and I was, I was about to say this is why I don't run, but that's not the reason. <laughs> it's not the reason. <laughs> it's not the reason. Her body was terribly mutilated and splayed out by the men in hopes of humiliating her. Shirley was the only victim whose remains were actually found by the authorities. In November of that year, Roy confided in a friend named Joseph Jackson. He's a guy who he had met while serving time at the California Men's Colony. He described in graphic detail all of the murders that he had committed with Lawrence over the past five months. His confession included a particular incident where Lawrence and Roy kidnapped a woman by spraying mace in her face and then dragged her into the van. They each raped the woman before releasing her. And I don't know why they released her and not the others. There is nothing about that. Like maybe it was like earlier, like they hadn't graduated at that. Yeah, maybe they were practicing still. Um, Joseph Jackson reported the two men to the Los Angeles Police Department, and they relayed that information to the Redondo Beach Police. Detective Paul Bynum matched Norris's confession to several reports of missing girls over the previous five months including the report of a woman named Robin Robeck, who was sprayed with mace before being assaulted in a van. At the time, the victim was unable to identify her attackers, so investigators showed her a series of mugshots in which the woman positively identified Lawrence Bitteker and Roy Norris as her attackers. When detectives linked the two men to the rape of Robin Robeck, the Hermosa Beach police placed the men under surveillance. On November 20th, 1979, they placed Roy under arrest when they observed him dealing marijuana. Lawrence was arrested the same day for the rape of Robin Robeck. Investigators found numerous Polaroid photographs of Jackie Gilliam and Andrea Hall inside of Bittaker's apartment, as well as Polaroids of almost 500 teenage girls in Redondo and Hermosa Beach. Like... Yeah, like, victims are just like on the road like yeah when I when I when I read that I literally yelled 500 <laughs> <laughs> so these pictures were likely taken during the time when the two men were scouting locations and practicing how they would lure women into their van okay so they were like stalking photos exactly okay. exactly so they would just you know when they would creep around in their creepy van they would just take pictures of random females wherever they went gotcha So the police were able to locate 60 of the women in the photographs and confirmed that none of them had been harmed. 19 of the women had been reported missing, even though there was no signs that the men had any involvement in their disappearance. Lawrence's motel room contained numerous bottles of acidic materials that they planned on using on their next victim. They found a sledgehammer, Vaseline, a tape recording of a woman being sexually abused, a plastic bag filled with lead weights in a book about locating police radio frequencies. The mother of Shirley Ludford was able to positively identify that the voice of the screaming woman in the tape was her daughter.
0: Oh no. I
1: I know. When I read that it gives me just full blown nausea every single time. There's oh, nothing worse than that. That oh my God, I, I can't know. Even
0: imagine that.
1: So Roy initially denied any involvement in the crimes, but as soon as he was confronted with the evidence gathered, he confessed. So even after confessing, he continued to downplay his involvement. He claimed that Lawrence was more to blame. Give me me a break, Roy. (laughs) He said that Lawrence became progressively more violent with each crime, and that when they kidnapped their final victim, she had actually begged to be killed to make the brutality stop. Oh. On February 9th, 1980, Roy brought the deputies to the places where they had dumped the bodies of Jackie Gilliam and Jacqueline Lamp. When they located the skeletal remains, the ice pick was still protruding from Jackie's skull.
0: So the earlier vic- So you said that the earlier that the victims who were thrown over the embankment hadn't been found.
1: Yes, so Andrea and Lucinda's bodies were never found but Jacqueline and Jackie's were found oh. and Shirley's was unfortunately found on the lawn of just a random home. Oh, that's right. That's yeah, right. Okay. sorry for not you know specifying that. On March 18th, 1980, Roy Norris pled guilty to four counts of first degree murder, one count of second degree murder in relation to Andrea Hall, two counts of rape and one count of robbery. Roy was reviewed by a parole officer prior to his sentencing, and he determined that he was an extreme sociopath and never exhibited any remorse or compassion about his brutal acts towards the victims. The defendant appears compulsive in his need to inflict pain and torture upon women. Clearly, Roy had no capacity to respect women and viewed them as sexual stimuli and nothing else. He was also extremely gratified by the ability to dominate and torture women, but claimed that while he enjoyed raping the women, it was only Lawrence that enjoyed the torture and murder aspect. Sure. Yeah, sure, Roy. Roy died of natural causes at the age of 72 at a prison facility in Vacaville. At Lawrence's trial, the 17-minute audio tape of Shirley Ledford being assaulted was played for over 100 people in the courtroom. Oh my God, 17 minutes? That is torture to have to listen to that. I can't, 17 minutes is a long time. Very long time to hear someone in absolute distress. And obviously, Shirley's distress will always outweigh what they had to hear. But that is, that's scarring. That's, yeah. So there was footage from that trial. And it showed people running out of the courtroom after only seconds of Shirley's screams Mm -hmm. echoing throughout that room. Sure. Lawrence was reported to have been smiling for the duration of that recording, <sighs> and I read an article on Psychology Today about how this is very, very common for sociopaths in legal cases. Um, that you know, sociopaths often smirk or laugh in situations where someone has been caused pain because they just—I mean—they lack empathy and they're insane. Yeah, yeah, and it seems that the element of control and complete power was the driving force for Lawrence. So he was sentenced to death for five counts of first-degree murder, and he passed away while on death row at San Quentin Prison on December thirteenth, two 2019, at the age of 79. This means that he lived more than four times longer than his oldest victim. Ugh. Yep. The assistant district attorney at the time, Stephen Kay, who prosecuted the Lawrence Bitteker case and actually also helped convict uh, Charles Manson and his followers— called Lawrence the most heinous murderer to ever set foot in a Los Angeles County courthouse. And that includes Charles Manson. Yeah, that's saying something. Absolutely. Stephen Case said he was haunted with nightmares for years after the Bittaker trial, and he would hear the girls screaming and he would run to help them, but he could never make it in time. Seven years after sentencing, the chief investigator of the murders, Paul Bynum, committed suicide in December of 1987. In his 10-page suicide note he specifically referred to the murders committed by Bitteker and norris as haunting him and of his fear that they may be released from prison one day yeah <sighs> paul was only 39 years old too
0: oh my god yeah a
1: very young man so this obviously affected more than just the victims yeah and the victims. count him families. as another victim absolutely profiler john douglas who was one of the very first criminal profilers that worked for the fbi interviewed some of the most notorious killers including ted bundy charles manson and edmund kemper and he stated that this case haunted him the most oh it is very evident that the horrific toolbox killers left a lasting and haunting impression on everyone who knew of them this is a direct quote from Lawrence spittaker i like women i don't think they're beneath us i got wrapped up in a screwball fantasy it wasn't exciting. Well, it was exciting in a certain sense. Age is not relevant as long as they're young and attractive. I got a problem with women anywhere near my adopted mother's age. My adopted parents were kind of old when they adopted me in their 40s. Having sex with a woman of that age reminds me of my mother, a sex object. Oh, fuck you, dude. I know it's that quote confused me a lot. I feel like he contradicts himself quite a bit.
0: Well, I don't expect either of these dudes to be very well spoken. Concise. Yeah. In
1: 1966, Lawrence Bedecker reportedly told a psychiatrist that stealing made him feel important and that some of the crimes he committed were under circumstances that were not totally my fault. Just no (laughs) responsibility. Okay. This desire for taking power away from somebody crossed over from auto theft to kidnapping over the course of his life. Potentially, his rootless upbringing could have caused him to feel out of control of his own life and destiny, and they chose teenage girls as their victims because they were easy to overpower and control. According to psychiatric evaluations, the two men were sociopaths, borderline psychotic, and schizoid. Side note, I read that doctors do not officially diagnose individuals as psychopaths or sociopaths. It's actually just a way that people with antisocial personality disorder are often described. That's something I just did not know. You know, After years and years of being obsessed with mental illness, I had no idea. I didn't know that either. So I thought that was good to throw in there. Um, Their disconnection from reality and lack of any remorse combined with their desire to be in complete control was a deadly combination that only worsened when the two men established a relationship. You see this a lot where two mentally ill people meet and their dynamic is absolutely lethal. Generally, one of the individuals is a little bit more dominant and aggressive while the other is passive and codependent. Like us. us. (laughs) I read that. I'm like, this is Ashley and I. (laughs) How sad is that? (laughs) Um, From there, they just feed off of each other's evil and commit atrocities that... They might not have had the ability um, emotionally and physically to do alone. It seems that their feelings of being deeply unwanted might have stemmed from being put up for adoption and abandoned by the people in their lives. And this with a combination of mental illness, their ability or their inability to maintain healthy relationships and lack of psychiatric services um, escalated into one of the most horrifying cases that I have ever heard of. And now me. And now you, Ashley. And that is the story of the Toolbox Killers. Good job, dude. That was... Um, heavy. Heavy. Heavy, 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 heavy. And I felt like, you know, even though this did happen decades ago, people are still kidnapped and killed every single day. Of course. And there are things that you can do to protect yourself just by being aware and educating yourself on those tactics. Yeah. So there have been reports of large vans pulling up to... Uh, next to females cars and parking garages and when the female tries to inch out without hitting the van the kidnapper opens the van door and then pulls the victim inside
0: oh dude i think about every time Mm -hmm. when i'm parking anywhere even if it's in a open structure or a parking whatever you want to call it like i think about who i'm parking next to always absolutely
1: even tinted windows yeah i'm very cautious of that so even mm-hmm. if it's not a sliding door situation just being in a tinted back seat mm-hmm. just being aware of that stuff be borderline paranoid <laughs> unfortunately i mean i think that a lot of women are yeah as soon as you get into your car regardless of it being light or dark out immediately lock your car doors we often get into our cars and we'll just start texting or eating and we just don't think that anyone will try to hurt us eating i do that all the time i'm like so excited to get into my car so i can eat my food you don't do that
0: (laughs) no i like i like to eat at home (laughs) and and the
1: whole world just like falls falls away falls away as (laughs) i'm biting into my chick-fil-a all right that's just me then i guess um third do not text when you're walking into your car you need to stay alert and you need to be aware of your surroundings we make ourselves so easy to target by just being oblivious during daily tasks
0: yeah you know i've heard that like if you are ever in an enclosed space or like if you think that you're gonna be attacked like if you think it's unavoidable if you're in in like an elevator with someone or Uh you're stuck in you know parking structure whatever you want to just some place where you know it's about to happen you should because I think like my instinct when I'm uncomfortable or it, Like, if I'm in an enclosed space, like, an elevator with somebody and I'm a little bit, like, uncomfortable by it, my instinct is to, like, look away and do anything I can to not engage. Mm -hmm. But I heard that you should actually, like, if you think that you're going to be attacked or if you feel uncomfortable, you should stare at them and, like, take in all of the information you possibly can about them, try to study their face and their features and whatever you can. Because if you, if it is going to happen, if you feel like it's unavoidable, you should have as much information as possible. I al-
1: I also feel like staring at someone kind of asserts dominance, you know? Like Yes,
0: yeah, that's an, yeah.
1: It shows that you're not gonna go down easy. Like I know when I'm in an elevator or I'm kind of creeped out in a situation, I try and instead of being quiet, I am overly chatty. Like I'll start talking to them and I don't know if it's my way of gauging whether or not they're creepy or not or if it's my way to be like, I am not shy and I'm not meek. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So fourth, do not trust strangers. It doesn't matter how nice they are. It doesn't matter if they're a chick. You need to trust your gut and just don't trust people. Oh, my God. Especially that's what
0: that sucks so bad because there are so many. I like read so often about women who are used as like. They lure people. The lure, yeah, to
1: lure women into feeling comfortable is it's just oh it's so uncomfortable. Whether it's to be like whether they're the victim and they're using, you know, the victim to lure more victims, or if it's like a partner yeah. or situation, it's just because there's a female there, you should not feel safe. I know that just is hard to fathom, but yeah. just don't don't go don't get into any cars, which is so sad because even with like Uber and situations like that, like that's normalized now yeah but does it make it okay so that's my story that was really good
0: it was very uncut I'm really glad that we decided to make this a solo episode because I
1: I feel like I need to go shower or something right now thank goodness we did this in broad daylight maybe you'll still be able to sleep tonight
0: yeah I,
1: I don't know if I will I think I might need to pop like a melatonin or something melatonin or two glass of pinot grigio yeah watch a rom-com thank you guys for listening um i will see you next week ash okay love you love you Bye. bye thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode please rate review and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening we owe everything to the many journalists authors filmmakers psychiatrists and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram and YouTube at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Ana Katerina. We'll see you next week.